Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word as we continue forward in the book of Acts, chapter 19. I'll be reading from verse 1 through to verse 20. You'll see in your sermon notes the uh, verses of focus, verses 8 through 10. The title of today's sermon is Walking in the Spirit in Ephesus and Asia. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped upon them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mighty and prevailed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So chapter 19, and even the end of chapter 18, really the... uh, author, Luke, points to the power of God in the Holy Spirit. And we see the manifestations of this power in so many ways throughout this chapter 19 of the book of Acts. 
Now, today's sermon text occurs sometime after AD 51 in the early 50s AD. Writing to this same church years later, Paul reminds them of some critical truths in the book of Ephesians, and he lets them know how he is praying for them. This is around AD 58 when Ephesians was written. Listen to how he's praying for them. Listen to what he says to these believers. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. How's he praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, it's worth considering, even though the Ephesian saints had already received and been sealed with the Holy Spirit at their conversion, that's in verse 13 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul prays to God for them, and he prays about the Holy Spirit being given to them more. He prays to God the Father to keep on giving them the Holy Spirit more and more in ever-increasing abundance. More and more unto wisdom, unto more revelation of God, unto renewed minds more and more, unto more hope, more experience of the spiritual wealth and Holy Spirit resurrection power in them and through them more and more with flaming souls firmly fixed upon Jesus Christ, who is resurrected and ascended and who is reigning over all things with all things under his feet for the good of his church, for the good of his people, for the accomplishment of his will in the earth. Commentary says, the same power that supports the world supports the church. And we are sure he loves his church for it is his body, his mystical body, and he will care for it. It is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus Christ filleth all in all. He supplies all defects in all his members filling them with his spirit and even with the fullness of God. We heard in Isaiah 40 today, didn't we? That he brings out the stars and he names them one by one. And this same great and awesome God, the same power that supports the world by his Holy Spirit, he supports and strengthens us. We are nothing in ourselves. We can do nothing. But in his power, nothing is impossible for God. And so we want to walk in his power. We want to walk in his spirit. And this is really the emphasis behind the most prevalent ideas in today's text. The power of God at work in and through his people to bring forth the kingdom of God in the earth. So today we'll look at this idea of walking in the spirit. Paul is doing this in Ephesus. He's been doing it before. 
He'll do it for years now. And it'll cause the gospel to go through all of Asia. We'll see his persistent boldness. We'll see his persistent focus, which is always the same, and that is preaching the kingdom of God. We'll see his persistent method, which is reasoning and persuading. That's what he always does. Now, we'll see that as usual, and he knew it was coming, some Jews reject Christ. But there were those who came to faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the man and the only man who's fulfilled all the foretold messianic prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. There were Christians who came out of the synagogue and they departed. He took them and departed with them. And rightly so, they had hardened themselves and they had begun to attack God's people. We'll see Paul's intensive discipleship of these new believers for years and the subsequent fruit that it bears so that all who dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ during that time frame. And hopefully we'll be... Uh, called to examine ourselves. Have you become a Christian? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Are you walking in the Spirit? Or are you quenching the Spirit? Are you grieving the Spirit? Or are you learning to fan the flame of the Holy Spirit of God in your life? Are you walking with Him? And are you filled with hope and expectation that He will use your mouth and your life to make disciples before you die? And that you will see others, that you will lead to Christ. And participate in helping them become disciple makers as well. So verse 8a. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. So after another uh, reminder of this power from on high. Which is how Jesus our Lord described the Holy Spirit in Acts 1. When he told them to wait. He told them they would be clothed with power from on high. Or endued with power from on high. This is the Holy Spirit's presence and power. We've been reminded of this in the prior story of those 12 disciples of John didn't understand the fullness of being baptized in the name of Jesus or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Luke then moves us into the work of God in Ephesus and beyond. He shows us the power of the Holy Spirit in work at work in their lives again. And we're reminded, of course, aren't we, of Pentecost in Acts 2 and then Pentecost to the Gentiles with Cornelius and this power of the Holy Spirit. We, we can't get bogged down in the concept of uh, speaking in tongues. We've already went, went through that. What we need to see is that our lives will be mightily impacted when we come to him. You will have a story to tell of God's victory of sin in your heart and in your life. And you will speak his word to others. And then you will do this in boldness, uh, unafraid of the impact in your life. So Paul is continuing to walk in the spirit's presence and power. Here in Ephesus. Now what is this idea of boldness? Well first we want to see that this is an answered prayer. And next we'll see that boldness is evidence of God's spirit at work in your life. Acts 4.29. You remember when they first experienced persecution in Jerusalem. And they'd come together and they prayed. They said, Lord now look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. It seems though, doesn't it, perhaps Luke had this in mind as he was writing chapter 19. All the things that happen here being fulfillments, uh, uh, if you will, answered, answered prayers. So this boldness comes as an answered prayer. Boldness from the Holy Spirit, brothers, brothers and sisters, what is it? It is the driving out of fear 
from our hearts. And it grants us courage to do God's will no matter what threats or losses or assaults may come our way. So let's look at his boldness. First of all, he had boldness to go into the synagogue. So he had boldness at the start. Think about all the pain and suffering that Paul has experienced at the hands of the Jews during his life so far. Every city he'd been in, he met resistance. He'd been left for dead after being stoned, mocked, accused of wrongdoing. Yet obeying the Lord's command, Paul goes to the Jews first, just like he always does, seeking God's elect from amongst the Jews, his countrymen first. Only after the gospel work within the synagogue has been completed does Paul then go to the Gentiles. The very high likelihood of Jewish threats and attacks is not able to deter Paul from doing his duty. He has boldness. He's bold in the Holy Spirit. He's walking in the Spirit so he does not run away from his duty. He doesn't just skip the synagogue and go to the school of Tyrannus to start with. He does his duty even though he knows almost for sure he's going to face the same kinds of difficulties. Next, his boldness continues. He has boldness to speak in the synagogue. He doesn't just go to the synagogue. He speaks in the synagogue. He doesn't just quietly tiptoe into the Jewish world of Ephesus. He boldly speaks to them, opening his mouth to preach to them from Scripture. And we know what his message is. It's always the same message, showing that Jesus of Nazareth is the foretold Messiah, proving from the Old Testament Scriptures who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is, and then calling them to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ as the foretold Messiah and to be transferred out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light and life and love. Now, he has boldness to the end. He speaks in the synagogue for three months. He, he knows what the end will look like when he is to stop, and he continues all the way through. He's bold to preach the gospel of the kingdom as long as he can until the fruit is done there in the synagogue. He's going to continue bringing in as many new believers as possible before Jewish unbelief and hatred flare up upon him. He knows it's coming, but he courageously preaches as long as God allows. We need, to, we need to note here that God himself is the one who determines the time, the set time needed to gather in his elect from amongst the lost in any given area. Did Paul know it would be three months? I doubt he did. He just continued doing God's will that he knew he was to do until that line had been crossed when he knew that it was time to go to the Gentiles. So what is his persistent focus Paul's message is the same message everywhere he goes. He preaches it a little differently when he's talking to Jews and Gentiles, but ultimately it is the gospel of the kingdom of God. The text says, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. What is this about? Well, it is not complicated. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He alone is the crucified, risen, and reigning King of kings. He is the King of the kingdom of God. And all people everywhere are commanded to repent and follow him 
without exception. And repentance simply means renouncing self, sin, and the devil's kingdom and turning to Christ for forgiveness and power and submitting ourselves to him as our only king of kings. And you cannot have a kingdom without a law. And his law is the law of love. And it is beautiful. We have read it today. We read it every Sunday, don't we? Because we find his law to be a beautiful description of the life of love that Jesus revealed to us. So we love the king's law. We know we cannot save ourselves by his law. We're no longer slaves of the law. But we've been born again unto the author of the law. And this law we know expresses his heart of love. And we walk in his love when we love his law. And in this, we bring the terms of peace to the entire world as his ambassadors. We are the ambassadors of the King of Kings who is upon the throne of the cosmos to whom every knee is to bow, to whom without exception every tongue is to confess from every corner of the world, every valley, every mountain, every sea, every river, every home, every cottage, every place is his. And we are the ambassadors bringing this message to the corners of the world. Jesus said the same thing. He said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose, I have been sent. This is nothing new. There's no competition between Paul and Jesus. They're preaching the same message. Did you know that in Luke Acts, of course, both written by Luke, this Greek phrase, kingdom of God, is used 39 times. 39 times in those two books of the New Testament, around 30 times in the rest of the New Testament. The commentary says the things concerning the kingdom of God among men, the great things which concerned God's dominion over all men and favor to them and men's subjection to God and happiness in God. He showed them their obligations to God and their interest in him as the creator by which the kingdom of God was set up and the violation of those obligations And the forfeiture of that interest by sin by which the kingdom of God was pulled down. And the renewing of those obligations and the restoration of man to that interest again by the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Whereby the kingdom of God was again set up. Or more particularly, the things concerning the kingdom of the Messiah, which the Jews were in expectation of and promised themselves great matters from. He opened the Old Testament scriptures, which spoke concerning this, gave them a right notion of this kingdom and showed them their mistakes about it. Paul loved the Old Testament. We should, too. He preached the word of God. He preached the gospel of the kingdom of the Messiah from the Old Testament, revealing to them with no doubt that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. How did he do this? What was his method? We see his persistent focus. How did he do this? The text, it says reasoning and persuading is how he did it. Reasoning and persuading. Let's think about this. This idea of reasoning is an exchange. It is a two-way street. You need to think about it to converse, to have discourse. You, You might think of the idea of an argument, not necessarily with heat, but with light that we're having a back and forth exchange. It's respectful and it's based on awareness of the other person and what they believe and where they are in their walk with God. So 
we see that coming from the Holy Spirit is not only boldness, but also humility. And that is the beautiful and to this world shocking combination that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is boldness and humility, courage and tenderness in one package by his work. So Paul walking in the spirit in Ephesus, he's not only bold, but he's also humble. Think of it because reasoning requires listening, requires learning, requires understanding the thoughts and beliefs of the other person. It means you have to care for them and where they are. And for this to take place, Paul needed to express love and respect so that others would be willing to talk with him. He needed to be the kind of person that, in, that others wanted to talk with. You know, you can have a welcoming persona or you can have an intimidating persona. We want to be welcoming in our demeanor. Paul certainly would have displayed this there in Ephesus. So reasoning requires first humility toward and love toward other human beings. Next, Paul walking in the spirit was granted for his eyes So his own eyes to be more and more enlightened in God's word so that he could be more and more effective in bringing the truth of Christ and his kingdom to his hearers. It's doubtful that Paul had a photographic memory and knew every single word of the Old Testament perfectly from the beginning of his ministry. He was also learning and the humility breeds learning. He probably got some hard questions from people about texts in the Old Testament And he had to dig in and learn more in order to answer those questions. He preached argumentatively. He disputed. He gave reasons, scripture reasons for what he preached. And he answered objections for the convincing of men's judgments and consciences that they might not only believe, but might see cause to believe. He preached in dialogue form. He put questions to them and received their answers, gave them leave to put questions to him and answered them. This is love on display. These were beautiful conversations. Uh, Perhaps you've seen and had a chance to observe Paul-like evangelists at work before. Maybe you see that growing in your life as well. But it doesn't stop there. The boldness is still in place because there's also persuading that is taking place. That means to induce one by words to believe and particularly to, to believe unto doing something. So think about this. This humility plus boldness that's blended together. It's a dance of wisdom, if you will, guided by God's spirit. As Paul is interacting with his hearers, he's got to know when to start pressing for repentance and a new life. You see, in each relationship, a time comes when the rational arguments against following Christ have been swept away. There's no longer any rational argument. And when it comes to that time, it's time to move into persuasion Questions, questions humbly discovered and clearly answered from Scripture will lead to this moment. And if you're amongst the elect, it will eventually lead for you to repent and to trust in Christ. Right? So our God is so kind to us. Consider the the one who made the stars and named them and puts them in place. He says, let us reason together. He is so good and so kind and so merciful in his condescension to us to have our questions answered. But you see, Paul, and we, we can learn this too, he knows when to transition from reasoning and moving into persuasion, from answering questions to going on to the call for repentance. The time for stalling is over. All the questions have been answered. 
It's time for you to trust in Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the Messiah. It's time for you to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is time for you to rise up and reject the kingdom of darkness and the lost ways of your hardened synagogue that has rejected the true faith and follow Jesus Christ as the rightful King of Kings. Commentary says he persuaded. He used not only logical arguments to enforce what he said, but rhetorical motives as well to impress what he said upon their affections, showing them that the things he preached concerning the kingdom of God were things concerning themselves, which they were nearly concerned in and therefore ought to concern themselves about. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we persuade men. Paul was a moving preacher and was a master of the art of persuasion. There comes a time, brothers and sisters, where when we are conversing with others, we need to ask this individual, what does this mean for you? How are these truths landing in your mind and in your soul? And what choices will you make today? What decisions will you make today regarding what you have heard? You see, it goes from a more rational kind of reasoning and a back and forth that's somewhat academic. And when all the questions are answered, There comes this moment. Who are you and what will you now do with these great and glorious, the the most important truths that you can ever learn? What will you do with them? Well, I hope, brothers and sisters, that no one here will be like these Jews. And I'm not a good preacher if I don't warn you against that. Verse nine says, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. That's the description here. So after three months, some of these Jews have come to faith. It says some, so the suggestion there that there, that there, were, there were more, more than some who did come to faith. So some have come to faith and they are called disciples in the next text, but some refuse to be persuaded. So as usual, the time has come in this town where the unbelieving Jews reveal themselves. They reveal themselves at this time. You know, this Greek word here uh, of hardening, have you ever seen someone that has scleroderma? Have you ever heard of that disease process? It's, it's a hardening of the skin and uh, the mucosal tissue inside the human body. And they, they become very tight and they can hardly move. They're immobilized because their skin can't stretch and they can't swallow very well because the inside of their body is hardened. I think this is a helpful example of of what happens in the spirits and souls of individuals who refuse the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is this hardening, this immovability, this stubbornness, this obstinacy that that someone is given over to, and they become stiff-necked. They become immovable. They had an invincible aversion to the gospel of Christ within themselves, the commentary says. They were hardened and they believed not. They were resolved. They would not believe. Though the truth shone in their faces with ever such a convincing light and evidence, therefore they believed not because they were hardened. And we have to understand this as evangelists. We do not know the person we are speaking to, whether they are amongst God's elect or not. Their response to the gospel demonstrates that. Brothers and sisters, you see how what a gloriously powerful evangelist Paul was and many hardened their heart to his preaching. Do not let it dismay you if many hardened their heart to your efforts to bring them to God. You cannot persuade men into the kingdom. That is the work of the Spirit of God. 
We reason, we persuade. The Spirit moves and uses our reasoning and persuasion to bring His elect to salvation. So it, it gives us peace, right? We can reason, we can persuade in love and in um, a contentment that God will do whatever He will do. Now this hardening that does take place, and it, it's, it's going to be one way or the other for you, for all men. You're going to soften yourself to the gospel, to Jesus and his kingdom and his ways and desire to rejoice in being his slave, belonging unto him, that your only comfort in life and death is that you are not your own, but in both body and soul, you belong unto your faithful savior, Jesus Christ. So that will happen in your life and that spirit does that or you will be hardened. So which way are you going? Because Christians can harden their hearts against God. I'm going to read a text from Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. And brothers, this is written to Christians. Brothers and sisters, this is written to Christians. These warnings are for us, not just for unbelievers. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. Where your fathers tested me, tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold The beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in. Because of unbelief. Those who crossed the Red Sea. Those who received bread from heaven. And water from the rock. They fell dead in the wilderness. Oh dear saints. Examine yourselves. Is your love for Christ increasing? Is your longing for his glory growing? Is your desire to decrease increasing? And that he would increase, increasing. Is this what people would say of you? Because believers are warned against the same hardening that we see took place amongst these Jews. And it will happen right here in our church or any church over time. If we're not growing up in Jesus and finding him to be our all in all. May that be true for you and for me and for all of our offspring and for everyone who comes upon this place to worship Jesus until he returns. Have you ever hardened your heart against the Holy Spirit in any way? You know, did you know that when you refuse to repent, that in that moment you're hardening your heart against the Lord? Um, It's really important not to receive, not to refuse God's conviction of your sin. How about doctrinal stubbornness? You have some doctrinal beliefs from your past that you're just unwilling to address. You're unwilling to allow anyone to examine them. How about some practical obstinacy in your life? There's certain ways that you do things that you're just not going to examine them. How about willful disobedience in your life? 
These are very serious things, brothers and sisters. And it is not a good thing to trifle with God's grace. May that not be true for any of us. May we so much value the new life that we have in him and fan these flames in our own lives and as, a, as part of one another's lives be about fanning the flame of the Spirit in one another's lives. Because you see, where does hardening lead to? It leads to unbelief. This hard heart leads to a dark mind. The refusal to submit to God's truth because of these preconceived notions, these presuppositions that you refuse to have challenged by God's word. This is a dangerous place. In fact, you can call it insanity. It is a form of insanity to refuse to believe the truth that God gives to us. It is irrational. Unwillingness to release unbiblical personal presuppositions, whatever it is, this is hardness of heart. And it will quench the Holy Spirit in your life. We have to say that, uh, particularly in our world filled with denominations, that it's so easy for us to do this and elevate secondary distinctives above the primary, which is Christ and his kingdom. So let's not do this, holding on to our own ways and treating them as more important than they should be. Another terrible fruit of this hardening is speaking evil of the way, the way of Christ to the world. And this will also involve speaking evil of God's people. And this is a most terrible thing. We looked at that this morning in our instruction hour, uh, the dangers uh, associated with uh, breaking the sixth commandment. This is a terrible place for us to go. And, you know, I doubt anybody in here has ever committed murder, but I bet every one of us in here has committed murder in our hearts to some extent. So this internal hardening process always leads to scorning God and his people and all of us can be guilty of this in our hearts. This, I think, is well described in Psalm 1, verse 1, this process that people go through. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That's where it starts. Nor stands in the path of sinners. That's the next place it goes. But look where it ends. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Sits in the seat of the scornful. So when we are thinking or speaking scornful words towards other Christians, we need to stand back and examine ourselves. Is there a hardening of our heart that has taken place prior to this in some way? <clears throat> About these Jews, the commentary says, they did their utmost to raise and keep up in others an aversion to the gospel. They not only entered not into the kingdom of God themselves, but neither did they suffer those that were entering to go in. For they spoke evil of that way before the multitude to prejudice, prejudice them against it. Though they could not show any manner of evil in it, yet they said all manner of evil concerning it. These sinners, like the angels that sinned, became little Satans, adversaries, and devils, little false accusers. Well, that should really grab our attention because we can be little, little devils in one another's midst when we have these types of thoughts and words towards one another. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't forget to uh, ask yourself if you are more like the bad guys in the story as you read Scripture. Examine yourselves in light of these things as well. So what does Paul do? He knows it's time to depart. 
He departs from them and he takes the new disciples with him. And he goes to the Gentiles at this point in time. So walking in the Spirit's power and wisdom, you know, the same prayer he had prayed for these Ephesian believers. We see it at work in his life. Paul understands the moment and he leaves the Jews there in their obstinance. We've seen him in the past shake the dust off of his garments. And we know that these kinds of towns experienced tremendous destruction when God brought down his wrath upon the Jews in all it was a part of leading up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So he takes with him these new Jewish converts, these new disciples of Jesus Christ. So we need to note here that a time comes and we need to wait for it when the evangelistic efforts in a particular location come to an end. It may not ever begin in some towns because we may not be able to find a person of peace. We see that pattern of evangelistic efforts where when we go to a new area, a new place to bring the gospel, if no one welcomes us, we're just told to brush the dust off our feet and go on. But perhaps God has his people in that area. And we stay until such time as we can no longer preach safely. That is the general process that we see in the evangelistic process. Also, while we do not want to be a part of sheep stealing, that is a bad thing. It is no sin, brothers and sisters, to encourage followers of Jesus Christ to come out of churches that refuse to believe in Jesus Christ as he is revealed to us in his word. It is no sin to encourage believers to come out of that, that kind of place. And there are some in our world that are quite obvious in terms of the level of um, unbelief and ungodliness that have taken over in the halls of mainstream religion in our world, sadly. And I say this with great grief. Um, so it is no sin uh, to encourage uh, believers in Jesus Christ to find healthy, biblical, local assemblies where they can worship God in spirit and in truth. I speak against the ecumenical movement that tries to call the Roman Catholic Church uh, a real church and Protestants that have signed the document and says that we, have, we should welcome one another into our fellowships. I discourage you from ever participating in a Roman Catholic Mass or an Eastern Orthodox worship service. And um, I don't think that it would be good uh, at all for a believing church to pretend like the Roman Catholic Church is a true church. These are hard things to say, and these are controversial things to say in our world. But uh, I think we have to say this. We want to see our brothers and sisters who are true believers in these places come out of them into healthy churches and help, help healthy places of biblical teaching and worship. Commentary says, when he had carried the matter as far as it would go in the synagogue of the Jews and found that their opposition grew more obstinate, he left the synagogue because he could not safely or rather because he could not comfortably and successfully continue in communion with them. Though their worship was such as he could join in and they had not silenced him nor forbidden him to preach among them, yet they drove him from them by their railing at those things which he spoke concerning the kingdom of God. They hated to be reformed, hated to be instructed, and therefore he departed from them. Here we are sure there was a separation and no schism, but there was a just cause for it and a clear call to it. <laughs> 
want us to see here also that Paul's boldness continues. Not only is he bold to preach all the way through the time necessary, but he has the courage to bring these new disciples out of the synagogue. He's not concerned about what they would say about him, sheep stealer or whatever kind of things they might say about him. He wanted to see the kingdom of God grow and he knew what was needed for these young converts. When Paul departed from the Jews, he took the disciples with him and separated them to save them from that untoward generation. This is what Peter said in Acts 2, 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation, lest they should be infected with the poisonous tongues of those blasphemers. He separated those who believed to be the foundation of a Christian church there in Ephesus. So what does he do next? Well, he rolls up his sleeves, brothers and sisters. Because in many ways, what has occurred up to this point in time is it's hard. But what he's about to enter into is rigorous. It is daily, we are told. Reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years. This man... Paul is devoted to the word of God and to teaching the word of God to these new believers for this full two years here. So in humility and in perseverance, reasoning with the new believers there for two years, teaching them the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the foretold Messiah and how to live. You can imagine the fullness of the instruction he would have given them. Think about it. This is similar to the lengthy discipleship efforts that we saw in Corinth. Remember, he stayed there for 18 months. He's walking in the spirit. He had a door open to him, he wrote later about Ephesus. And he stayed while that door was open. And he preached to hungry hearts that wanted to learn the word of God, that wanted to grow up in Christ, and that wanted to be fellow disciple makers with him. And he stayed there as long as it took to train them up. He understands the extensive biblical teaching necessary to bring them up and also the demonstration of this life. They need to rub shoulders with him and others like him. This is what's needed to raise up disciples to maturity and some also surely up to readiness for church leadership. Teach, 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 teach. How much time are you placing your mind under the word of God to be taught the word of God? Do you make the learning of scripture the foremost goal in your life as a student? Oh, that's just for pastors. Not so. Brothers and sisters, build your life on knowing the word of God. Fathers, mothers, build your family on knowing the word of God. Your children immersed in the word of God. Day in, day out, morning and evening, may it be so. And I'll just say, brothers, uh, fathers, husbands, oh, please hear me. Don't let anything keep you from doing this in your families. Opening the word of God, reading the word of God in season and out of season and teaching your families. If there would be one thing that someone would say about you if they came and watched your family, it would be, wow, that Bible is open all the time. May it be so of us. Paul understood this. He understood that a life cannot be changed without a renewal of the mind. 
And if you've ever been into a place that's been littered and cluttered with all kinds of things that shouldn't be there, that is hard, nasty work to get all the old and nasty furniture out of that place and in renovation to put in the things that are good and right. That's what has to happen with our minds. One room at a time. One thought at a time. One belief at a time. One practice at a time. And instead of only the weekly Sabbath, he's able to teach daily for two years. That's thousands of hours. Think about it. Of teaching in God's word about the kingdom of God. This is why the word of God went to all of Asia. Practically. This is how God does it. It didn't just magically happen. It wasn't just some magical seed planting. It was hard, devoted work. And that is the way God does it. Now, seminary time frame instruction is in view here. Would you agree with that? It's a, it's a similar type of time frame. This deep instruction in God's word and in biblical sanctification, it is needed. But I want you to note that this is much more than a classroom setting. These disciples go forth regularly, as we see later, to go forth and spread the word of God to the entire region of Asia. And, and they're worshiping. They're a worshiping community. They're connected together in fellowship with one another in the setting of this instruction. Rather than this isolated, if you will, icy, ivory tower, academic, institutional setting separated from community and Christian evangelism and service and ultimately, in many cases, separated from reality. This is why seminary training is so often a failure is because we're feeding the mind, but there's not any transformation taking place. And that is going to puff up and it's going to create a lot of danger and damage within the kingdom of God. Now, the school of Tyrannus likely was a place that Paul was just able to rent for usage. It was probably a philosophical school. And they, uh, some joke that perhaps it was named after the teacher because it means a tyrant. <laughs> so maybe the teacher was a really hardcore teacher there at the school of Tyrannus. But likely he was just renting out this space. They think it was a philosophy school. The Gentiles belonging to a Tyrannus or a retiring place, belonging to a principal man or a governor of the city. And a convenient place it was, which Paul and the disciples had the use of, either for love or money. I saw also in the commentaries that there's even uh, ancient Christian documents that point to like 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day they would meet together. That's extra biblical. But the idea is they were there constantly teaching the word of God daily. We know that for sure, daily. So disciples of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we are all called to intensive lives of biblical learning and sanctification and the gospel fruitfulness. This is why the world, the Western world was transformed at the Reformation, because the word of God came back into the hands of the people and a plowboy in New England knew more about the Bible than most pastors in our pulpits today. That is what built our nation. That is what built the rest of the Western world. And if we ever want to see our families and our churches and our cultures truly transformed, we have to take this to heart. And may it be so for us. This is very convicting for me. Very convicting for me. I believe it's a way we can quench the spirit is by giving ourselves to other things when we can give ourselves to God's word. So do you think this kind of devotion to God's word describes your life? It's a worthy question. Oh, praise be to God for the fruit of his word. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. 
All who dwelt in Asia heard the word we're told. Now, I first want to stop and say this is a part of the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen before his return. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. We know we've looked at this text very carefully. The wording that Jesus uses throughout the Olivet Discourse makes it very clear that the time frame being referenced here is before AD 70, before Jesus' return in vengeance upon the people who had rejected him, upon the Jews, like he told them that it would happen. This is not Matthew 24, 14, about the future and about someday the gospel being preached to all of the world and then Jesus returning. And we see, and we can go through other texts in the New Testament, that during the time of Paul, the gospel had been preached to all nations. That occurred in the first century before AD 70. So we need to step back and see that this is being placed in Scripture for us to understand the times that are occurring. This is about AD 58. It's about 12 years before the destruction of Jerusalem and about 10 years before the coming great tribulation upon the church of that time. This is the context that you hear this. Jesus is by his Holy Spirit carrying out what he said would happen. This is also more demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in God's people and in the hearts of men. This is geometric multiplication on display. And you go through the book of Acts, you see initially we're added, this many were added, this many were added. And then it gets to a time where it says, and multiplied, and multiplied. What we see behind this is that disciple makers make disciple makers. It's not one plus one plus one. It's two times two times two times two. And that doesn't take long to fill the world with people who've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So have you ever discipled someone who went on to disciple others? It's a simple way to judge yourself of whether you're devoted to becoming a disciple and whether you are a disciple of Jesus Christ is have you made disciples who made disciples? Now, as parents, we know we want to teach this to our children and see them do it in subsequent generations. And we see this discipleship proliferation and this great geometric growth down through the ages. And we know that is the central, deepest part of the stream of God's kingdom. But we also long to be a part of these great revivals throughout the earth where we see hundreds of thousands, millions of people, thousands of churches planted in one generation. God did it then in the first generation. He can do it again now. But we have to be motivated like Paul was motivated, empowered like Paul was motivated, like Paul was empowered. What is the message? I want us to see that the message remained accurate through so many mouths preaching. The word of the Lord Jesus, the message of the gospel of the kingdom remained accurate through all these millions of people in Asia Minor who heard the gospel. This is another evidence of the Holy Spirit's power at work. Human beings acting according to the flesh, there's no way the message would stay the same. And this is often, I think, why we see doctrinal error will flare up as movements occur because they're man-centered. They're not God-centered. They're not God-wrought. They're not Bible-centric. They're not Christ-centered. Somewhere between two and eight million people, when you look at the 
history books. That's the estimate of how many people lived in Asia Minor at that time. So this ends, does it note, does it not, on, on a great note of, of power and victory, a great note of love for all men. There's no favoritism dis, displayed here. This went to Jew and Gentile, every fellow human being. Love your neighbor as yourself. That means the neighborhood of mankind. And this is the gospel of the kingdom of God for all mankind. And they understood that. They knew it was not just for the Jews. They knew it was not just for the Gentiles. They knew that it was the gospel of the king of kings whose throne was over every inch and every soul. Brothers and sisters, the Lord God can and will open the doors for the gospel in any country. There is no time or place that is too dark for the great light of the gospel of God. No region, no culture, no level of hatred can withstand the light of the gospel if Jesus Christ chooses to shine forth his face from his throne by his Holy Spirit. This grants us great encouragement, I hope, and boldness to go forth and do God's will. And you know, maybe that's not what he'll do in our land, but we go forth anyways in love and service to him. Commentary tells us the pattern continued for two years with the result that Jews and Greeks hear the word of the Lord. Paul's ministry in Ephesus, we know later from Acts 20, runs into its third year. So out of Ephesus came a ministry that impacted the entire Lycus Valley, planting churches that received the letters later that we see in Revelation 2 and 3. Did you know? Did you think about that? The geography of the letters to the churches in Revelation, that's, those are these churches probably that were planted during this time. Paul also probably planted some of them during his third missionary journey because we know he came through the region of Asia on his way to Ephesus. Workers such as Epaphras were key in this expanding church work. So are we devoted to God's kingdom and to the mission of God's kingdom that he's given to us? It's so easy to get distracted by our own lives. You know, you've got to go to work. You've got to make money. We have to do the daily things that we have to do. And these are good things. But have you prayed and asked for God just to bring one person in your life in the next 365 days that you could disciple? Whether it be to lead them to Christ and then also to help them grow up in Christ and his word. Just one. Have you asked God for that? Just one? I think that would be a wonderful prayer for all of us to ask. And that God would help you to be a disciple maker, which means that the individuals that you love and serve in his word go forth to make disciples of others who go forth to make disciples of others and so on. <clears throat> so as usual, a few questions for us to examine ourselves. I've given you some of those already today. My first question to you is, are you a Christian? Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the little ones, I hope that you're listening. I know it's easy as a little one for your minds to get distracted. But I want you to ask yourself, have you confessed your sin to God? And have you trusted in the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross for your sins? And that you are forgiven because of Christ's work? And so there, thereby, have you become a Christian? Have you been converted Now, there are some here young enough, 
maybe can't understand what I'm saying to you. That's okay. But for those of you who can, another way of putting this question is, have you been baptized by the Lord Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit of God? Jesus Christ is the one who baptized, right? John the Baptist baptized with water, right? And how does Jesus baptize? He baptizes with water. We're told by, excuse me, with the Spirit, by pouring out the Spirit. That's, what, that's how Jesus baptizes. Jesus baptizes by pouring out His Holy Spirit onto His people and filling us with His Spirit. This is what happens when you trust in Christ. Faith and regeneration by the Holy Spirit are simultaneous. So have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God? Now, what are the evidences of this? Well, I mean, it's certainly possible that God might give you a miraculous ability to speak another language for the purpose of the acceleration of the gospel in that culture, which is what I believe happened in Acts chapter 2. And we see that occurring throughout the New Testament age is the acceleration of the gospel through that miraculous power. And people knew that it was of God because it was a real language at the time, not Babel that no one understood. So it was an objective sign of God's power on someone's life because clearly they were communicating in a language, sharing the gospel with other people they didn't know. But what can we look for with confidence that we should see in every person's life? Well, the first thing is if if you've been clothed with power from on high is that you'll be sanctified. You will find a growing hatred for sin in your own heart. You will say with Paul, there is no good thing in my flesh. And you will know there is no power within you to do anything about the sinfulness in your own heart. And you will despise your sin more each day. And you will love his law. And you will love his life in you. And you will be becoming more and more like him each day. And you will experience this power in you. All the humanistic efforts that you have done on your own in the past to change all the things about your life that you want to see different, all the humanistic techniques, all the fleshly ways that you've tried to change that have failed. God will come in by his spirit and you will say, what is happening? I am changing. And you will tell others, they will tell you, you will be sanctified. And you will find it to be the great joy of your life. And you will find that in our church, if God is doing this, we will be loving, becoming more like Jesus, not conforming, not pretending, not being smushed into a mold, but real transformation by his hand, being made like Jesus Christ. Next, in this power, you will share the word of God with others. It will be like a fire in your bones, pent up. You will not be able to not speak of Jesus and his goodness to you. I know a couple of engaged young ladies I know a couple of newlyweds and it is only good and right that they talk about their love for one another and it makes the daddy happy to see that. But is there any greater love than what God has for us or what we should have for him? And how could our tongues not be overflowing with the declaration of his glory and his goodness to us and the considerations of his death for us upon the cross that we can never wear out considering his great sacrifice for us? You will share his word and you will share what he has done in you. This is what will happen in your life. You will make disciples. You will long to be a part 
of disciple making. And you will see it happening in your life in various ways here and there. Maybe there will be one more that plants and, and, and maybe more than one that sows. You may not necessarily have an opportunity to take a single person through the entire process. I understand that. But will you be a process, be a part of the process of making disciples in this world? And, and listen, it's not about growing this church. It's about being a part of growing the church. I would rather that you discipled 10 people who never set foot in this church than to never disciple anyone or, or think that you have to bring someone to this church before you start discipling them. It's for the kingdom. It's for the church, brothers and sisters. Next, are you growing in the word? Are you growing in your understanding of the word? Do you know how the books of the Bible fit together with one another? Do you know which books are the pre-exilic books and the mid-exilic books and the post-exilic books and how all the history of the Old Covenant fits together in one glorious story from the Pentateuch to Malachi? Can you talk about how Jesus is revealed from start to finish just like he did on the road to Emmaus with his disciples? Can you start with the New Testament in Matthew and go to Revelation and show how Jesus Christ is the foretold Messiah? Do you understand the law of God and what it says to every part of life? Economics. Finance, politics, family life. Are you growing up in the word of God? Are you a person of God's word in your mind? You know, another way to think of this is, are you growing up in love? You know, we're going through relational wisdom, two, two uh, Sundays per month. And there's really nothing here that you probably already haven't learned. But it's a great way to learn to think more about applying real love in our real lives with one another and towards God. Are you growing up in faith? Do you see your faith increasing? When things threaten you, your reputation, your property, your safety, how do you respond? And I don't mean being foolish. I mean doing God's will and you come across things that threaten you. How do you respond? Well, you know, it's, it's a test for you to grow in your faith. When that happens, will you grow in your faith or will you give way to fear and shrink back? So you, you should be able to have stories to tell of things that God has shown you in your life where you have faced fear and you've had to receive by the Holy Spirit boldness to cover that gap of fear in your life. Are you growing up in hope? You know, there's a lot of pessimism in our world today and there's a lot of fear-based thinking about the future it certainly could be that very difficult times are coming upon us because of our wickedness and because of the evil that is present in this world. Does any of that change that the whole world is under the feet of Christ? Does any of that change? I mean, if, if, if we have to give our bodies to the flames, does any of that change that Jesus is the foretold Messiah and all are under his feet and his word is going to the ends of the earth and he will receive the greatest of all glory? Nothing can change it. So I hope we will live in hope. I hope we will live in hope. Now, we need to talk about hindrances, and we're going to be going through this more and more. Are you quenching or grieving God's Holy Spirit? So let's say you can say yes to the questions I asked you before. Yes, Pastor Clark, I am a Christian. I have trusted in Christ. I have confessed my sins to him. I have been born again from above. I have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, now my question for you is, are you grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit? Quenching, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. 
The Holy Spirit, God, is, compares himself to a flame. We saw the tongues of fire come at Pentecost. We see the burning bush. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. The fire of God dwells within us. Are you fanning the flames of the fire of God or are you quenching the Spirit in your life? How do we quench the Spirit? Well, we just don't do the things that fan the flames. No word. You leave the word out of your mind. You're not meditating on God's word day and night. No prayer. You're not worshiping God and giving him praise and thanks for his goodness to you each day. You're not casting your cares upon him. You're not crying out to him to conquer his enemies. You're not dwelling in his presence. You're not experiencing the fellowship of God's church. You're not with the people of God. You know, we fan the flame of God within one another. That's, what, that's the essence of what it means to be an encourager. is to fan the flames of God, of his spirit within one another by the truth. Through wise words that we learn over time. So this, you can quench the spirit. But you can go beyond that and you can really throw cold water. And this goes on to grieve the Holy Spirit. Because Ephesians 4.30, Paul warns the same group of believers that they can grieve the Holy Spirit. So the second person of the Godhead has emotions. You know, you can make one another sad by how you treat each other, right? Let's say you don't have affection. Husbands, you don't have affection for your wife that day. Or wives, you don't think about your husband that day. You don't show any affection. You know, that, that's, that makes us sad when we do that to each other. Children, you, you maybe you'll not be kind to one another and you'll be sad about something. Well, we can make God sad. And we can do it for long enough through terrible things such as willful disobedience, prideful resistance to conviction of our sin, prideful resistance to correction and teaching from God's word. And affections for things that we should not have affection for. Or, now listen carefully, this is I think a really big one. Affections that are too strong for things that are not forbidden. So it's not forbidden, I don't think, for me to uh, read a book. Right? Let's say I want to read about the history of China. Right? But I would hope that my dear wife would be sad if for two weeks I read that book and said nothing to her. We can do this to God with the things in our lives and not even realize that we're not doing that, that we're not drawing near to Him. And I think in our world, we don't give enough thought to whether we're quenching and grieving the Spirit because we're so accustomed to impotence. We have grown comfortable with being powerless. And I think if we were to see and live in the midst of this kind of power, more and more, we would have a growing hunger. And this hindrance may not be something that you are conscious of in your life. And that's an important prayer for you to offer to God. Lord, show me if I am self-deceived. Show me if I am believing things that are not true.
Show me if my heart is divided and not pure in love towards you. Please show me, Father. If you sense that you are not receiving this kind of power from the Holy Spirit of God in your life on a daily basis, maybe there's something wrong inside your soul that is shutting down the Spirit's work in your life. I hope that we'll all consider that. Because, brothers and sisters, these hindrances that I've been discussing, these can lead to hardening. This can lead to hardening. I mean, I've stood here. I've preached since 2008. And I have seen things occur from people looking me in the face from the pews that I never, ever, ever in a million years thought would happen. It could happen to you. So beware of quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit for even one moment. Next. Rejoice. Rejoice. Give thanks. We're going to sing here in a minute, and I hope that this final word from the sermon is what carries us into rejoicing and giving praise to God. Because we want to give praise to God for who he is and what he has done and the power that he brings into our lives and the fruitfulness that he promises to us. We can expect to be transformed. We can expect to be servants of Christ who are fruitful in our service to him as we go through submitting to his spirit day by day. Is he the God who made all things from nothing? Is he the one who named the stars and put them in place? Yes, he is. We will see, and we should expect to see and be hopeful and rejoice, victory over our sin, victory over all hurdles and resistances against Christ and his kingdom. And we will cry out to God with hope for widespread impact of the gospel. Perhaps it may be said of Edgefield County or Augusta or the CSRA that all who dwelt in that region heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word and we are so thankful that you work in us by your spirit to transform us. And we lift up our hearts and minds 